0: And you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Do you know what I'm I'm drinking?
0: Yaks milk.
1: Not your father's fucking root
0: beer. I don't like that. Oh. I, I tried it and... Uh, did you drink it over ice? Yeah, I also tried it with vanilla... No, uh, no, you else. screwed
1: it up. You got to just eat the bottle.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I did wrong, I
1: guess. <laughs> you, know what you know what I've started wearing? Underwear? Oh, Andy, no. I've started wearing my sweats <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> and, and a robe. Uh, over over my sweats, and I, it's because it's because I saw my dad do it, and and then they gave my parents as I was I was visiting them, and they gave me the a robe that is incredibly soft, but uh, it comes from a, 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 the wardrobe of a dead man. <laughs> Are you following this story, Andy? <sighs> okay, let me back up. There's there's a guy uh, that is a relative of uh, of a cousin of my father who passed away. Sadly, has many shoes, very expensive tastes in clothes. Happen to have a tan, sort of a taupe. A tope, incredibly soft robe, and I love this robe. And so I was visiting my parents, and they said, "Hey, need a robe? It belonged to this guy who's who is dead." And I said, "I've I've never had the clothes of a of a dead person." And they said, "You should try them. They're very soft."
0: Clothes of dead people in general.
1: And so, <laughs> I didn't clarify. And I only have this one example. And I can tell you. Uh, it is, uh, empirically, it is very soft. And then I see my dad parade around in an equally soft robe over his sort of lounge clothes, his sweat clothes. And so he made me want to try it and it's super comfortable. I've got this robe and this soft shirt and soft robe and my sweatpants. And it's, uh, it's kind of a whole new me for podcasting right now. <laughs> Did you want, <laughs> do you want to hear it again?
0: You know who you're becoming? Who? You're, you're becoming Michael Keaton and Mr. Mom. <laughs> you're going to start watching soap operas soon. You're start, start. not, not being... <laughs> you're going to lose track of time. Oh, was I supposed to pick up the kids? <laughs> you know
1: what it was? is when I started. It's when I got the glasses. We've talked about this before. I got the glasses, and suddenly, when I put the glasses on at night, I'm kind of—I just need to really relax.
0: Is it—is it like your superhero costume? A
1: little, a little bit, a little bit. It is, yeah. Do you have any news? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: nothing that could top that.
1: <laughs> should we? Should we tell the people where we're from?
0: Where are we from? <laughs>
1: Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson.
0: Hey, howdy, hey.
1: (laughs) And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, uh, this is the first of our second... Uh, series on the films of 1939, and we're going to be talking about George Kukor's The Women. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next And if you've ever had it come over you to take the news of the salon and get a story printed in the rags for all to see and judge, all to see and judge, I tell you, then you're the kind of gal that's ripe for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize, hashtag guest the movie challenge.
0: And with that, since Stephen Smart is right in the middle of the Yet another Technicolor fashion show extravaganza, throwing peanuts at the monkeys, even though the sign says "Don't feed the animals." I'll fill everybody in, just like a modern head of hopper. This week's movie was 1953's Pickup on South Street, directed by Samuel Fuller and starring Richard Widmark, Jean Peters, and Thelma Ritter. Congratulations to At Fegvi for his fourth win of the year. You're entered once again to win the 2016 Pony Prize. As always, a new contest starts on Monday.
1: We have some follow-up uh, from the good uh, Ben Lot with the blot spot.
0: Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, following up on his very own uh, listener's choice episode, Ben wrote, "I'm glad you guys ended up enjoying one of my favorites. Naturally, since I have such a strong emotional attachment to it, I ranked it much higher than you. Your rank one thirty-nine, my rank six. But I think lo- it was a it was a little kind of caught by that uh, old brother block.
1: The, the old brother block. That's right." Uh, you know, sometimes I worry uh, that the old brother block is uh, in the way of some of our ranking, and then nights like this come along, and I think, "Oof! Thank God we have that old brother block."
0: That's right,
1: <laughs> Andy. I think it's time. Let's do some
0: trailers. So I have a super, uh, super cheery one for us to talk about, Pete. Oh God. <laughs>
1: I saw this actually last week, and I thought, huh, wonder when Andy's going to bring the whole ship down. This <laughs> Tonight's the night.
0: <laughs> the ship's already sinking, Pete. Why not make it sink faster? <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I actually think this looks really good. Um, Derek C. in France, um, who we actually were in school with. Uh, oh, I was my in film- goodness. Yeah, I was in film school with Derek, and, uh, and this is his next film after uh, several really interesting films that have caught a lot of uh, people's attention. The Light Between Oceans is his latest one, uh, based on a book, and it looks really, uh, really heartbreaking. (laughs) There's nothing right about it. It's about uh, uh, Michael Fassbender and Alicia uh, Vikander?
1: Vikander.
0: Vikander. Really? I knew I was going to botch it, and she just won an Oscar and everything. I still can't say her name. Anyway. They are apparently, uh, I don't know if they're hermits or what, but they live alone on an island. And uh, one day a boat appears and it's got a baby in it. And they say, hey, let's adopt this little baby. Free
1: baby. (laughs) Free baby
0: coming in (laughs) off the coast. And they make the baby their own. And uh, years later, they uh, are hanging out in town and they meet a woman who uh, happens to have lost her husband and daughter at sea and the daughter is just the right age to to be the same age as their daughter. Lo and behold they realize, oh, this is her daughter, not ours and and then it's the decision of do we keep it? Do we give it to her? Who's the rightful parent now? blah blah blah. And it just is uh all set to rip your heart out. And uh <laughs> I think it looks great. <laughs> No, I, I mean, it does, it looks really, it looks like it's going to just kind of beat you up. Uh, Rachel Weisz is in it, and like I said, uh, Fassbender and Vikander. And, uh, you know, it is going to be hard to watch, but I am quite excited about it. Uh, what do you think? What is it,
1: What does it mean to be quite excited about a movie that's going to rip your heart out? I'm never excited about that. I know I'm going to enjoy them on some level, but excitement is not the word.
0: Well, I guess excited is, you know, I enjoy emotional roller coasters. I enjoy films that, that play with my emotions, depending on or whichever direction it goes. And this looks like it's going to be a tough one to, to go through. But I'm excited about having my emotions fiddled with. <laughs> How's that?
1: <laughs> no you you win. You win this one, Andy. I uh I ch- didn't choose this uh trailer for a reason. Uh mostly cuz I knew you would do it. Uh but it has got uh you know, it it's got Alicia Vikander and Rachel Weisz right in the same film and I love these ladies. I think they're fantastic. Uh Michael Fassbender you know, I just watched him again just last night in uh Days of Future Past. Uh and I find myself really he's a pretty magnetic guy. Even in that in that <laughs> stupid Steve Jobs, stupid
0: stupid movie. He was great. Did you call him magnetic in <laughs> Days of Future Past?
1: Did I, I didn't say that unintentionally, did I? Did you, I just say s- magnetic? You you said that. Yes. God, I am on fire. I don't even need to think. I just put it in neutral and coast, and it just, just fireworks. <laughs> fireworks, Andy.
0: You're a magic man.
1: <laughs> oh, that fast bender. So I really like all these people. I am I am constantly uh, just, I, this is one of those movies that's going to hurt to watch. It will, I'm sure, be beautiful and heart-wrenching. Uh, I have not read the book, the M.L. Stedman book that, uh, on which it is based. Uh, I probably won't but uh i'm sure many people uh say that it comes with some critical acclaim
0: uh, probably, probably uh, but it, it is gorgeous
1: that. i mean it's just it looks beautiful and deeply deeply
0: moving yes it does it really does i i am like i said i'm looking forward to uh having my uh my uh emotions be thoroughly uh, uh destroyed you know who Thro- you know who would like this thrown by the ocean onto the rocky shore. Yes.
1: You know who would like this movie? Your young um, children. You should take them. Yes. <laughs> Family
0: <laughs> movie, our movie our night baby kids. In the boat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Honey, free baby. Didn't I tell you how we got you? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Can I talk oh. about my trailer now? Oh, wait, you well, got to tell mine, us when does yours come it, out?
0: It comes out September 2nd. So uh, be ready to start September with some tears, everybody. Oh, dear. hmm
1: Well, okay, my turn. And I'm, I'm kind of in a hurry because mine, uh, is, mine launches on March 13th if you're in Austin. It launches, Andy, at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Uh, And so hurry, if you're going to see it, get your tickets and get down there. This is, of course, you know what I'm talking about. The Trust crime thriller starring Nicolas Cage, Elijah Wood, and Jerry Lewis. It's even that Jerry Lewis, I guess. Uh, This is, uh, I, I don't know what sort of... I had a whole other trailer in mind, and then this just came up. It was a front page of IMDb. This first trailer just came up with the trust, and I thought, "I it's Nick Cage." I make constant fun of this guy, and and Frodo. Of course, I'm gonna check this out. Of course, I am. <laughs> and you know what? It looks really weird and funny. These two cops. They are, uh, you know, they're just doing their jobs in a in a corrupt world, Andy. And they're investigating a drug invasion in a grocery store and they find a bank vault and that is where our story uh, ends up getting uh, interesting it's got great music I love the music of the trailer the whole vibe the second half of the trailer is the first half I was kind of thinking ah meh the second half I was having a great time once it became a caper trailer I was sold comes from Alex Brewer and Benjamin Brewer uh, you know, I'm going to call them the Brothers Brewer, but they may be cousins. They, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Uh, don't know anything about them other than they have not done a whole lot. This looks like their first uh, uh, big film. They've done some shorts, um, and uh, it was written by Benjamin Brewer and Adam Hirsch. Also, not known for a whole lot beyond uh, some shorts. I have seen nothing of them, uh, I, but I think this looks like a... if. If this is any indication of where they have come from, these guys are in for a funny career. That's what I'm saying.
0: You know what I thought when I watched this trailer? I heard
1: you laughing because I listened
0: to it. <laughs> so you,
1: it can't be negative.
0: I was actually uh, quite surprised that um, I, I it kept showing things that it seemed like it was going in directions I wasn't expecting. And so, right? like, you know what? I, I'm going to really give this one a chance because it uh, really piqued my curiosity uh, these guys made me laugh. That seemed like a great pairing to have these two together, and uh, yeah, I will. I will see it.
1: This was that. Is, uh, this pairing is maybe the last pairing I would imagine with Nicolas Cage is Frodo. He looks. <laughs> he, he actually totally pulls it off. I think uh, he does. It, it takes a it's certain. Great. It takes a certain kind of character actor to match Nicolas Cage in this kind of movie. But this is the kind of movie that Nicolas Cage is made for. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm uh, I'm a fan. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it looks great. Again, uh, opens narrow, 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 as in Austin, Texas, release March 13th, 2016. Uh, that's coming right up this weekend.
0: Well, here's hoping it'll get picked up there. And that's right. That's get right. Get a better release, yeah.
1: Somebody distribute this thing, please.
0: Please.
1: There you have it. Go. Andy, give me a bromide and put some gin in it. it. Take a good grip on yourself, you're going to die.
0: Stephen Haynes is stepping out on Mary. But Sylvia, who told you? A very curious? Wh- what girl? This Crystal Allen. Crystal Allen? Yes, you know, the girl who's hooked, Mr. Haynes. Hey, what happened the hot date
1: you had on for tonight, darling? It's hotter than ever, dear. I'm having him dine at my place. Tommy found out I was our home girl. Homegirl? girl, <laughs> get her. Why don't you borrow the quintuplets for thee? Because I'm all the baby he wants, pet. Andy, the women. 1939, comedy drama is what they call it, uh, from director George Cukor, writers Claire Booth Luce. Is that what you would say, Luce? Luche? based as she wrote the play.
0: So you wrote the call play. It Luce, Lucy Looch? I think it's, I, I assumed I it was Luce, and was the clear. other one is Luce also.
1: Yeah, and then the screenplay is by Anita Luce and Jane Murphan, uh, with uncredited additions from F. Scott Fitzgerald and David. Donald Ogden Stewart, stars Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Mary Boland, Paulette Goddard, Phyllis Pova, Joan Good. Fontaine, Virginia as little Mary uh this uh, and and many more this is a film uh, a, a cast of all women um and it And marks... when you
0: say all women it really is all women Yeah
1: it is a cast full Hundred, of 100
0: more than 130 females Yes speaking in this film not to mention the animals were all female and <laughs> and every photo that you see it's only females in the photos
1: except for George Kukor, and <laughs> nobody picked up on that that maybe They should let a woman direct. Maybe. Maybe. But 1939. 1939. What are you going to do? All right. So the premise of the women, uh, this is what I thought. I thought, it's sex in the city with no men, more women, and even less interesting story. (laughs) Does that pick it up pretty well? (sighs) Ugh. And, you know, I know I'm going to be hard on it, but I I will tell you, there are some interesting things in this film. Um, I think that the second half of the film, uh, and we'll talk about the breakpoint, is actually much more interesting to me than the first half of the film, uh, which I think is drivel. Uh, The second half of the film offers us a glimpse at some incredibly interesting political and uh, legal and gender uh, history. Uh, that I think is definitely worth talking about. Uh, the The way the film kind of portrays it is is fluffy, and I, I it was tough to watch. I didn't. I I actually slacked you a number of times. Does this film actually end, or is it just a loop of nonsense like this all the way through? So, um, anyhow, what did you what did you think of it? Was I alone?
0: No, no, you were not <laughs> alone, Pete. No, you were not alone. You know, it's funny. Uh, loose, uh, and when I say loose, I mean uh, Anita Loose, not Claire Booth Loose. Uh, Anita Loose, screenwriter. Um, she actually, I, I guess, claimed that it's always been men who find the women offensive. And wow. uh, you know, I, I, I almost take offense at that comment. Because, I do too. And, and I, you know, granted, she said that sometime in her lifetime, which was not in recent times. Right. Um, i I, I'd, I'd like to think that that things have changed a little bit, and i you know I just found the story here um like I really looked at this like, okay, what was it that made people interested in this story back in the thirties What oh, was I'm it delighted
1: that, to hear that, what you uncovered
0: well i am not sure if I uncovered much, but <laughs> I really struggled because I'm like, okay, there's got to be something that that had made this play so popular that it played six hundred and sixty six times. <laughs> they were proud of it. I'm that. proud of it. Which they were so proud of they actually put in the credits here. Um I I I just struggled trying to connect with it. I I really had a hard time with um with opinions and advice that was given. Um there were some elements that I liked. There were were some bits of dialogue and some confrontations that I liked uh, quite a bit. Um but on the whole, I really had a hard time with this. I I found it to be um, just a just a very dated film. And even looking at it uh through those glasses, saying, Okay, I'm gonna put my 1939 glasses on and watch this as if I am watching it back then, I still just you know have a difficult time really finding it a a film that I find much worth in.
1: The uh, the premise of the story really, I mean, I I joke about the Sex in the City thing and it's I you know for whatever that's worth the 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 uh the premise of the film is that, that it's a um it, it's a survey of the lives uh, and and romances of this group of connected women uh, this network of women in uh it, the incredibly wealthy part of New York an incredibly wealthy area of New York right and uh, the Our main character uh, is uh, played by norma shear she 's uh, mrs stephen haynes mary uh, mary haynes and and she 's sort of our protagonist of this thing, even though we follow a number of women and their relationships, they all tend to revolve around mary Haynes, and and this is all set uh, in motion the whole story is set in motion when we discover that uh, Mary Haynes Husband Stephen Haynes, is having an affair with the perfume lady uh, at a, a local um, high-end fashion store. Uh, that is Crystal Allen, played by Joan Crawford. And the thing that really rubs me the wrong way about this movie, uh, and this I know is a reaction that is that that is marked by the datedness of the film, is that it it doesn't make any of the women look good, right? It, it really demeans and diminishes every one of the women in this film. There is not a strong woman of integrity uh, among them. Even Mary Haynes, who gives up at the end, and I find the ending an absolute, uh, absolute disappointment. We can talk about that in a bit. But do, what do you think of, the, of that conceit, that this makes women look
0: bad? Oh I completely agree. I this makes women it just it, I mean again this is from 1939 and I, I I there are elements I I think it's almost a little um uh, schizophrenic because there are elements that I think are actually pretty strong for women. I like that Mary views her relationship with her husband as one where they are kind of equals, where she can go fishing and catch fish. Uh, sometimes even better than her husband. There are, uh, she's she's fine. Horseback riding, like she's she seems to be kind of on par with with being uh, being right in there in the action and doing whatever it is and not just sitting idly by.
1: I love that you said schizophrenic because she has a great relationship with her daughter in the beginning of the movie. She's a strong sort of role model figure and then is not.
0: Right, exactly. And that's and that's it. It's like it goes from these things where it's like women doing strong things and being strong to, um, you know, I mean, her mother, the wise old owl, giving her advice of, oh, you know, these men, they, they just need these things because they don't know how to— uh, to change things in their life, and the only thing that they they think they can change is is having another woman on the side. And I was just like, this is the advice your mother gives you, and that it's okay, and just to kind of go along with and, it.
1: Yeah, don't talk about it. Don't, talk, don't confront him about it.
0: Keep it a right. secret, just like I did with your father. Right. It's like, wow, this is horrible. And I was glad to see, again, that she's just like... Are you nuts? This is, there's no way I'm going to do this. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. She's not going to take her mother's advice. And then she didn't. And she ends up getting divorced and going through the whole proceeding. And then it, it all crumbles because it, it's like they, they set some interesting character elements up for her and some of the other women. And then it all crumbles because in the end, she's like, she says that she has to swallow her pride because what is the line? I wrote it down because it made me so mad. <laughs> um her mother her mother's like, Mary Haynes, haven't you any pride N- pride not at all, or, or no pride at all. That's a luxury a woman in love can't afford uh, it's like good she grief. has to she basically has to forego you know the the strength that she has found as a woman who can do her own thing and forego it because she's not been able to get past the loss of her husband and even and and now she knows that her husband is miserable. With this this other woman that he cheated um cheated with um when she when he was uh, with Mary and uh, and he wants out of that relationship and and so Mary willingly accepts him back and basically forgives him and it's almost like saying yeah he can do whatever he wants and and you know sure you can leave him or whatever but hey you know if you swallow your pride you can get him back and just suck it up like nothing's wrong
1: because I'm a woman in love
0: oh it just. Uh, that really bothered me. It's just like, and, and like you said, it's like, what sort of example is she setting for young Mary? She's not setting any good example. I mean, it's it's a terrible example to set. You know, you what's know,
1: actually this, interesting you bring up young Mary, and I think I may have spoken too soon. Young Mary is about the only character in the film that has any sort of spine. Uh, and, and I find that ironic. It's young Mary who ends up kind of, sort of speaking truthfully and authentically to her mother about what she's heard. It's young Mary who stands up to this awful Crystal Allen, Joan Crawford's character, uh, in the in the bathtub, which is a very strange scene. Uh, but it it is uh, it's young Mary who actually has the sort of integrity that you want. These You want at least some character in the film, some adult protagonist-level character to display uh, as a role model for children. None of them have it, uh, and uh, it, it is young Mary who ends up being the, being the character that you can sort of latch on to only briefly. Yeah. You're right. I, I, don't find, I don't find the women offensive at all, certainly not for the reason I feel like she is implying. I'm going to really be stuck on that, this yeah. loose comment.
0: No, it's strange. It's strange. You know, and, and he, something else about the writing of this, and I, I think the film sets it up in a way that um, I thought was was interesting and kind of fun, but also incredibly dismissive of all the characters, that when it, it starts the film, and, and I can say, okay, one reason that they do this, where they, as they introduce each actress playing one of the characters, they show an animal. So you get... Uh oh, here's here's uh um uh, Norma Shearer playing Mary. She's the deer. Right? Yeah. And then you get uh, then you get Joan Crawford playing Crystal and she's the leopard. Mm-hmm. And you know, Sylvia is the black cat, Flora is the monkey, Miriam is the fox, Peggy is the sheep. There's Owl. Oh, cow, Edith uh, is the cow. horse. Yeah, right. It's it's just it's just it's silly. So I found this uh this quote in this review of the film on this uh, the website, uh, this blog, A Crowded Bookshelf. It's telling that the movie opens with the credits. Each star is given an animal that she represents. Some of the characterizations are kind, but others not so much. There are some cliches, including cats, tigers, and child star Virginia Wheedler, as a lovely fawn. Rosalind Russell and Joan Crawford, the film's two villains, are represented by a hissing cat and a panther, respectively. What the viewer immediately is clued into is what kind of personality each character poses, uh, possesses. It's a funny bit, but not necessarily because the writing is clear, and the characters are drawn so unequivocally that you'll immediately understand which woman uh, you are meant to root for, who are you meant to scorn, and who you are meant to loathe. The writers, while witty, aren't exactly subtle, nor are they interested in complex, difficult characterizations. And I think that sums it up pretty well. It's just, you know, these, these are very uh, just kind of sketches of, of these women characters. And sure, they have some fun lines and stuff, but for the most part, I just... I didn't find any of them that interesting to... Uh to you know follow and I kept referring to my page because I wrote down what all the animals were <laughs> I'm like oh okay she's the sheep sure I can yeah. see that
1: that that's the problem I had with it is that I knew from the moment they started this they open up the credits with this this the the animal parallelism right the symbolism it is wearing that symbolism so heavily on its sleeve this film that you that you realize the film probably doesn't have anything of merit on its own to say in these characters, if they're gonna, if they're going to just hit us over the head with the symbols of what these, I mean, these classical symbol animal symbols, uh, what they mean, and align them so heavily to these to these women, they're they're going to do disservice to the actual characters. That's that's what I felt, and maybe that that helped me sort of prejudge the film in maybe a negative way. You know, maybe I should have watched it without watching the credits, but it it really put a bad taste in my mouth at the very beginning.
0: And you know this is it was one of those things where I went kind of like tried going back to the 30s and going okay maybe for the audiences there they really can already connect with most of those actresses I mean is it's kind of like the stable of of all the top MGM actresses at the time. It's like, you know, all the big ones are in there. You know, okay, so I'm like, okay, so it's kind of cute, it's kind of fun. I can see kind of why they would do something like that. It's just a it's just a fun way to kind of give us this this broad sense of these actresses, especially because there are so many of them and and having little uh, you know, shortcut like that might be something that could help. So I was like, okay, I can kind of I can give it that. But at the same time like I I read from that bit, it just leaves it so broad that it just seems like they didn't try that hard.
1: Uh, let's talk about George, can we?
0: Um before we do, one more thing in the script that I think just just keeps oh. us from really identifying well with may- yes. with these type of women. This may be is, it. Yeah, I mean, we have this this Technicolor fashion show in the middle with some completely outrageous uh fashions by uh the designer Adrian. And uh I you know, I think it speaks to the world of fashion that it doesn't seem that it's changed that much in my eyes. <laughs> that that fashion show fashion is usually interesting to look at, but you would never, ever see anyone wearing any of them.
1: What was the deal with the woman wearing the dress with like the spikes coming out of the back of her hand, that giant post uh, of jewels? Sure. I mean, there, there is some ridiculous stuff in here.
0: Some crazy, crazy. And, and There was ridiculous outfits, even when they weren't at the fashion show. I liked the uh, the outfit that Sylvia is wearing uh, early on in the film, where she's got like eyeballs all over her shirt. <laughs> Very strange. But the thing I was going to say is that after the fashion show, when they're all kind of you know going on and trying on clothes and everything, we have this uh, this model walking around in this nightgown, and Mary looks at it. It's like, oh, how is how much is it? And she's, she's like, oh, it's $200. This is a $200 nightgown in 1939. In today's dollars, that is basically a $3,300 nightgown. I, who are these women? It's like this, you said sex in the city earlier. And I think that is it. I mean, these are women who just don't have a sense of reality and are living in in kind of this this fantasy world where they, they spend $3,300 on a nightgown that will hardly see the light of day, just maybe their husband's eyes and that's it. It's, it's it's a different sort of mentality. And maybe the film is trying to kind of comment on that type of woman, but it doesn't seem to in my eyes.
1: No, it, it really doesn't. It certainly doesn't make a very good case, uh, whatever it's trying to do. Um but but again, moving to to George. Yeah. Now, is it ironic that this film, in my eyes, holds up only only marginally better than Gone with the Wind does?
0: It's funny because um, yeah, he he had started on Gone with the Wind, and then he was removed because it just they didn't feel he was quite the guy to do it, and he ended up uh, getting uh, this film instead. And sure, they say he's an actor's director, he's a woman's director. It seems like, okay, this might have been the film for him. And I mean, I will say, there's a lot of uh, great uh, women in here. And I think there are some some good performances in here. I think that for what the script is, I think he handled it well. And I think that he, um, there are some nice confrontations between some of the women that I really like. I mean, I do feel that he caught some... Some good bits here. It's just I really just don't like the film.:
1: Well, I, I think he got some okay confrontations. I think in general, my opinion of these of, of the large majority of the film is that it is way too many voices on screen at once uh, talking over one another at once. This is a film that I think technically, the audio uh, was not able to keep up with the vision. Of what they wanted to do. I think maybe they could have come up with a film like this, uh, you know, with so many voices today, talking over one another and still allow us to really hear and figure out what what we should be focusing on on some of these big screaming matches. Uh, I I had a, a really hard time uh, just placing what he wanted me to do. It was chaos. And then some, this is partnered with some of the most incredibly boring sequences of dialogue, of of much more intimate dialogue, uh, that I've seen this this sequence when the two uh, servants... Are talking in the kitchen about what the maid has has been eavesdropping on the uh, the main couple, uh, the uh, uh, the Haynes couple as they are are having a fight upstairs about their divorce. We have just this two shot of these two women sitting at a table. It looks like I mean it's it's about as proscenium as you get uh, of of just these ladies talking about what is what happened just a few minutes before. It is incredibly boring uh, and. Uh, but not at all illustrative of any of the character traits of the main characters that we want to see. And it goes on forever. Uh, I mean, just talk about putting your focus in just the wrong place.
0: Well, and I have a hard time deciding if that's course problem or if that's a problem from the play or the screenplay. It um,
1: certainly feels like an appendix from the play.
0: It, it does. And I think, I, I mean, that's kind of I, I my, my biggest problem with that is it feels completely like a a, uh, a a side effect of this idea of let's tell a script with only women and we have to do the whole thing from women 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 we can't ever show a guy and by making that choice what happens is you have a very important scene which is the scene where Mary is fighting with Stephen about this affair that he's having and saying we're going to get divorced it's i mean that that's a key emotional core scene for a character and for us to really connect with her and to to be a part of that scene and for us to have to see the entire thing through the two maids as they gossip about it because the only way they could write it is uh, without showing Stephen, is by having it told by this perspective of these two maids. That is a terrible, terrible screenwriting choice. It It's a problem that is because of this way they wanted to tell the story. And I fault them all for being a part of that and saying, this is how we have to do it. I think it was probably a smarter idea for when they did the remake in the 50s, uh, the musical version of this, The Opposite Sex, uh, where they actually included the men, I think that was probably a smarter way to tell a story like this. I can't say if it's actually any better; it's probably not, and I probably won't ever watch it. Um, but, but <laughs> well, and wasn't but, it
1: remade as a film again in two thousand eight? Right, this oh, sure, was the Diane yeah. English film. Have you seen that one?
0: No, I haven't seen that one, one either. I uh, I, I this, heard it was even worse than
1: this. Uh, as did I. Meg Ryan, Annette Bening, and Eva mendez, and yeah, oh my goodness, uh, y- it was it was another. It, Yeah, this one also actually uh, stayed true, I believe, to the no women or or no men on screen until the end. I think they show the male baby, Um, but uh, but that's it's the same thing. So, I uh, I agree with you. I think it's I, I couldn't help but really latch on to the Bechdel test. While watching this film, how ironic (laughs) is it that, and I recognize the Bechdel test is, you know, a modern invention, but how ironic is it that we have an entire film with hundreds of women, all named, and the only thing they ever talk about is men. This is a whole movie that failed. I mean, talk about missed opportunity.
0: Oh, yeah it's i and i mean it's it's marketed that way you know the the poster and everything says you know and it's all about men <laughs> as yeah. if they needed to find a way to draw men into the uh, to the crowd to watch the watch the movie i don't know i i feel like it was just a fail on all parts and uh you know i, I don't know i just i think that what people liked at the time was probably that they felt there were some, some strong women and some strong women confrontations. Um, in retrospect, I just don't think that you can say that. I really don't think you can.
1: Uh, is, uh, final comments on George Cukor. Are we done with him?
0: Uh, the only other thing I was going to say about him, which I thought was pretty interesting, is that later in life, he really apparently did not like the fashion show sequence and uh, didn't want it to be a part of it anymore. I guess that sequence actually was removed from many screenings for a long time. And it wasn't until, gosh, I think in the last you know, 15, 20 years or so when uh, Turner Classic Movies actually reinstated it into the film. And that's how it's been shown since. But there was a very long period of time where that fashion show sequence was actually excised, which I thought was, you know, I mean, I, I didn't care for it. Um, I thought it was interesting that they actually removed it. And they also shot a black and white version of it as well, which they included in, I guess, some theaters where they couldn't show color. I I really didn't understand well, why they had that other version.
1: You know, we should talk a, a little bit about what it is and what it marks, because I don't think we've done that. I mean, it, it, it right. is really jarring in the film that halfway through, or about 50 minutes in, I think. The movie, which is all black and white, stops and the all the ladies go to this fashion event and then the movie changes to color and then it becomes this sort of stage play of a a fashion show that's like eight minutes long with no dialogue. I I thought it was ten. Ten minutes longer, yeah. Oh goodness. Well it felt like thirty. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in color and it shows the most bizarre high fashion just in and out and off stage on stage uh, and, and of course it doesn't hold up very well by, by sort of production standards if you're used to looking at sort of the New York fashion scene that that you feel like it's, it's very 1939 It, um, but it is um, it it changes the entire perception of of the film and into this color, modern, beautiful, uh, vibrant thing, and then the life gets sucked out of it again and you're back into black and white. I found it such a strange choice to shoot this in color. Uh, to shoot the film in black and white, if you're going to put this jarring thing in color, it really makes me sort of realize—I mean, I, I certainly understand why Gugor would hate it uh, later in life. It seems like just a really strange decision, and it it, it didn't fit for me uh, structurally uh, in the way that I would have expected to like take a break from the film, sort of like an intermission uh, as, as a chapter break— um, it, it it is much more jarring than that. It doesn't let you sort of reset because after we we fall right into more drama uh, of the ladies actually as they start going through the clothes. So I, I couldn't figure out why they why they did it. I couldn't make a case for it. Um, I don't know. It just didn't make any sense.
0: I mean, I I could see why they did it. It's you know it was probably a way for women of the time, people of the time, uh, to while they're watching the movie to see some. It's like to go to a New York fashion show. And I think a lot, of, a lot of audiences never had that opportunity. It's not like they all had Project Runway on their TVs all the time. I mean, they didn't have that opportunity. And to go to a movie theater and actually get to see a fashion show, I can see kind of why they would do it at that time where people would, you know, you know, they get to pay their their whatever it was and they get to see this. Okay, now, that's
1: an that is an interesting perspective, but Andy, 10 minutes.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying I'm Andy, not, come I, on, man. I, I agree. You, you are
1: insane. <laughs> you are making the case. So you think it's a it's a cultural win, right? You think it's a cultural win that they included this for the for ladies of the time in um, you know, He's Podunk, it's, who never had a chance to go to New York to actually see a fashion show. Uh,
0: yeah, I think it actually, it's it's weird. I think, again, it ends up being schizophrenic, because I think it serves two purposes. I think it uh, is a chance for people who have never gotten to see a fashion show to actually go kind of sit in, in on one and just see all these crazy fashions for 10 minutes, because they are kind of crazy, as I have already said, Um on the other hand, it's not that far after the Great Depression. And I think the other flip side of that is that it could be some weird way to kind of show audiences, uh, you know, kind of this this sickening side of society and how crazy uh, these, these women are that are spending $200 in 1939 on these nightgowns and probably more on some of these most just completely outlandish outfits. So it could be working on both levels. Although I just don't think I'm getting any of that other level. I think that's me reading into it. I, I, just, I, yeah. I, don't, yeah.
1: I think you're giving it much too much credit for being culturally subversive.
0: <laughs> I think I am. I'm just wanting it to be more, Pete. I just really do. <laughs> you know, I want
1: it to be more, Andy, because I want 1939 to have represented something bigger than than what I have discovered so far. Given how much people, t- you know, trotted out as the best year of film in history, I am not seeing that.
0: Not with this film, certainly. Certainly not.
1: All right. So uh, we've talked a little bit about uh, Adrian, the costumes. Uh, mm-hmm. Shall we talk a little bit more about the pro- rest of the production, cinematography, production design? Let's, uh, yes. Let's do that. Cinematography by Oliver T. Marsh and Joseph Rutenberg. Uh, Now, we've already talked about some of the things. I've been super disappointed in the film in terms of just how they portray some of these appendices from the stage play. Uh, I will say that in particular, and I found myself thinking this out loud, I was thinking out loud, huh, nice shot. Uh, There is a scene where we have Norma Shear um, uh, as she's walking out of the little waiting room after the fashion show and there is a really long walk directly toward the camera uh as she is she's walking in uh and going to her dressing room and i thought that's really interesting another sequence the opening sequence the camera work and the editing in particular as we are walking in and out uh, through the rooms of the uh, of the spa was fantastic and really kinetic and and uh, i thought really energetic
0: I mean, I agree with you there. I, I, I had no problem with the way the camera work was done. I actually thought that it, considering the type of film it was, a very talky, um, gossipy sort of film with just a lot of women, I thought that the camera moves were nice. And I actually did like some of the, the, the framing. I didn't have the problem that you did with Qcor as far as um, the, the way that the, the scripting was as far as how the audio and everything. I, I felt I found that I followed it pretty well. And uh, I also liked the way that he and uh, the cinematographers um, actually framed the shots. I liked the kind of the groupings of the women. And I I kind of, I don't know, it just seemed to work for me the way that they they framed everything. I mean, it wasn't anything too fancy, but I thought it worked. uh, I thought it worked fine.
1: Yeah, I I think they actually ended up some of those sequences. They ended up portraying just the physical movement of the women in the spa. I thought was just really funny. I mean that that was the the part of the comedy that that really struck out for me or or uh, stuck for me, I should say. Um, and uh, and and I think that's the piece that leaves kind of a lasting impression is just watching these women in 1939 try to exercise uh and be pushed around by their <laughs> by their coach, you know, uh, and uh getting getting their facials and all of this stuff. I mean that's a real uh that that's sort of an iconic bit of history uh that that I found super amusing.
0: Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um no I I, I think that um, I think that they uh did a good job. And you know, I will say I've never been a huge fan of kind of the uh the soft close ups that they would do in the uh you know, this period, the thirties, forties, fifties, uh, when you're showing kind of a close up of your female protagonist. Um, you know, you kind of get that Vaseline on the lens type of look. It's a really soft, lovey focus sort oh, of look. This whole um, film. It it definitely feels that way. Um, and as much as I didn't care for the last shot and kind of the way that that what what it represented and everything, I was like, you know, okay, it actually works in context of what they're doing for the film. <laughs> In that shot, I, I didn't, I didn't care for the moment, but I was like, you know what? It actually works here, though. So, I'll give them that, even all though right. I didn't like it.
1: You want to talk about Cedric Gibbons?
0: <laughs> Art direction uh, by Cedric Gibbons. Um, you, we talked just now about kind of the spa that opens this film, and as much as it looks like a set, like as soon as as soon as they walk in, and you've got the all the stuff with the dogs and all that stuff, and we got our little butterfly McQueen uh, moment and everything. I, it it looks like a set, but I really liked the set. I was like, "This is kind of a, a exactly what kind of a an over the top ridiculous spa w- should look like." You know, it's yes. just w- like way too gaudy, way too much. Um, Cedric Gibbons, I, I think, did did a great job here with the design. Both here, the 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 Reno divorce ranch, kind of all of this. But the thing that I really found interesting about Cedric Gibbons is that, um, just kind of the history of this, this fella, um, not only is Cedric Gibbons credited as the guy who designed the Oscar, he ended up getting, um, 38 Oscar nominations for best art design and won 11 of those. He was a guy who, um, apparently had a contract with MGM where, um, Every film that MGM released, and I, I, I'm i sure it was just a period of time while he was there, um, every film had to have him in the credits <laughs> as the art director. <laughs> so he's credited with like 1,500 films <laughs> that he worked on. Oh my
1: on. goodness. His IMDb page is Bananas.
0: It's nuts. It's just insane that this was kind of this I, I, I it boggles the mind that How somebody did... could come up with a contract like this. It says he actually only worked on, like hands-on, physically working on about 150 films, which is still a lot of films. But uh it's just, you know, he's credited with like a ridiculous amount. And it's great that he's like the guy who's, you know, designed the Oscar and everything, but <laughs> It's like there's this weird bit of film history with this guy. It cracks me up.
1: How does one get that kind of contract?
0: I don't know. I don't know. That is unreal. It is a really strange contract to get. I mean he has he's just like an insane amount of of uh, uh credits, and it makes me wonder it's like how how do you tell? which are the ones that he actually worked on and which are the ones that he just had a credit on because yeah. of his contract. I
1: mean, do we have reason to believe that he is uh he actually did this film? He did like 40 films in 1938.
0: Oh, I know, it's crazy. No, I it, from what I read, he did actually work on this film. Okay. That's crazy. But then he was also working on The Wizard of Oz this year, so <laughs> I think <laughs> He wow. did get an Oscar nomination for that one, so I, I assume if he's getting an Oscar nomination that he actually worked on it, but I don't even know if I can say that. Like I don't know how that works. Wow. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is
1: really crazy. Yeah. I'm so that's Cedric Gibbons. Some of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh you want to talk a little bit about some of the cast members that stick out to you?
0: You know, I mean there's there uh I, I like the pack of women. I mean Norma Shearer I think works well as Mary. I think there are issues that I have with um, the character. Um, I don't know if I have issues with her so much. I mean, maybe she might be a little, um, I don't know, a little, what's the word? I, I want to say um, uh, just kind of easy as far as, I mean, as far as her character arc, which I guess she's the one who kind of has as she kind of grows and then kind of regresses over the course of the film <laughs>
1: she, she's her character arc is a circle
0: <laughs> right it's not an arc It's a full this is circle.
1: but but you know i agree with you and and that was my my perspective in terms of her portrayal of this character she was the most likable of the lot um she wasn't by design uh, really uh, yeah by design i mean she had to be she had she was the only uh, one of the group that actually sort of stood out uh, with with the exception i think of uh, florence nash as nancy blake who who i think she was the the other sort of subdued kind of stoic of the group that i thought was was kind of interesting to watch uh, but but in terms of, of I, I, I who was who was that cuz i couldn't for the life short, of me remember she was the short writer who had she i've been with the tribe of Of headhunters in New Guinea or whatever her line was at the end, she's she was the one who who she was a writer. At the end, well, she's in it several times throughout the film for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so I, I think that there are, in terms of, of people who just sort of stand out, uh, you know, I thought Norma Shearer was great. She was the most likable. She was the one that I, I sort of found myself uh, having a natural affinity to. I think in, in that respect, I, I totally agree with you. I really dislike the, the way this character was written, but the way the character was portrayed, and I think, you know, I, I think you could say the same for many of the characters in the film. Um, I, I, I did enjoy their performances of these terrible characters.
0: The one thing I will say, I mean she has several scenes that I actually enjoyed quite a bit. Um one was the scene where she talks to her daughter about divorce. Um now again, I kind of I, I kind of have to go back to saying this is this this is the 1939, 30s. 1939, yeah. This yeah. is 1939. But, you know, as a child of divorced parents and having been a child having uh, my mother have this conversation with me, I actually really appreciated that this was in a film in 1939. I'm like, you know, this is I I this is a tough conversation for any parent to have to have. Yes. And I really enjoyed the way that she did that. I I enjoyed uh, Virginia's kind of reaction to it. It did feel very much like you know, child acting in the 30s. Mm-hmm. But that being said, I still appreciated it, and I, I appreciated her trying to be tough for her mother and the way that she kind of walks out and she's kind of she's got that quivering lip. But I, I really enjoyed the way that they did the scene. Um, I also enjoyed um, Norma's performance several times when she's like on the phone and she's she's really trying to keep it in, and you know she's she's great with kind of holding that. The wet spot in her eye without any yes. the tears. Roll out. She does that really well here. Yes. We see it like every time she's on the phone pretty much. But uh,
1: Yeah. No, she's, she's a good, she does definitely uh, delivers good phone. She's yes, like, she uh, what's his name uh,
0: does good phone?
1: Bob Newhart. She does Bob Newhart level phone, or I should say <laughs> Bob Newhart <laughs> delivers Norma Shear level phone.
0: <laughs> wow. There you go. There you go.
1: Uh, and I agree with you that, uh, to talk just a little bit more about Virginia Wielder, her, uh, her performance as she goes into the next room. Yes. Mommy, I have to go wash my hands. She's totally holding it together. And I thought, if this were a movie made, like, I- imagine this movie made <laughs> today... Uh, doing that thing i mean she would have gone into the room and and like really done some she would have done some damage or somehow got you know done something really horrific and in this movie she just grabs the wall and starts saying oh mommy dearest oh daddy darling she kept saying (laughs) daddy darling
0: oh how quaint the 30s it was it was really quaint it's you (laughs) know just awful Um, but 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 i like what they did because that to me felt like the way that that uh you know, a child who has been trained how to act, I mean, not. and when I say act, I don't mean act as in perform, but I mean, this is how, in proper society, this is how a woman behaves, and this is how a little girl who is learning how a woman behaves um, would try to behave, and I, I actually felt that it worked pretty well for me.
1: I, I agree with you. I actually, I actually agree. <laughs> I'm
0: surprised,
1: but I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Joan Crawford was uh, appropriately despicable.
0: Yes, and uh, I guess that she and Norma Shearer, actually, uh, there was some real tension between the two of them, and I thought that was interesting that they uh, chose to cast these two uh, to play these roles. So that was, uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting bit of casting here. And, mm-hmm. you know, Joan Crawford is uh, an actress I haven't seen a whole lot. I feel like the only other thing I've seen her in is uh, is um, uh, uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> 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 so I've got kind of a... An interesting spectrum for her.
1: Wow, <laughs> that's not that's not great.
0: I know. I, oh man, oh, I'll have to do some more. You uh, catch up Joan on some Crawford. Joan Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really need to.
1: Wow. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, I thought she was. Uh, I thought she was perfectly. Uh, uh, she was perfectly hateful in this film. It and uh, absolutely resented. Uh, you know her her role in this little. Um, Cohort, um, and she she was she was really sociopathic. You know, I mean, she just didn't. She totally missing the the any sort of moral cues. Um, that that were put out. I think several of the characters you may have been able to categorize as as you know sociopathic, but in in her case, she really was pretty textbook, uh, and I think that made her interesting to watch. Um, and actually, I should say, in terms of how that character was written, that's the one that I don't have a problem with for for sort of 1939 portrayal of of diabolical woman. No, she yeah, was, she's great. She was bad, and she was great being bad. And it's a character; it's a villain. I mean, it was a good. It was a good sort of social villain.
0: Uh, so, she's um, yeah. There, there's something about the kind of the wickedness that she has, and I I like how she's not. I mean, there's something about that uh, antagonistic character where she shows no shame about it either. And when when Mary actually confronts her um, after the fashion show. Uh, Crystal is like, yeah, whatever. Well, I'm going to keep doing it. So tough. Yeah, And, you know, yeah. And, and I I mean, that was actually another scene that I actually really liked the dialogue in because I thought it was two strong women confronting each other about this common man between the two of them and how Mary was trying to stay on the side of right. And Crystal's just like, screw it. I, yeah. you know, whatever. And I love that line as, uh, as she kind of is finishing up and she's, you know, um, I can't remember what Mary says, something about, um, you know, uh, buying clothes that uh, Stephen will like. Or don't buy that one because Stephen won't like it. And Crystal's just like, oh, don't worry. Anything that Stephen doesn't like, I just take it off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just awful.
0: That was like, I was yeah. like, okay, this is a great, uh, just a really fun, catty line. Yeah. I, and I liked that. And it also reflected, I thought, well, the, the way that they were playing around getting around the production code.
1: Right, right. Um there so do you were there any other of the the women that you specifically want to call out besides uh, Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Virginia Wilder? Um I love? I
0: loved Rosalind Russell. I thought she was great as Sylvia. She mm-hmm. has she um you know in like uh my girl Friday stuff like that. She really has that uh, that fast patter down and I I think she does a great job here of being that character.
1: Yeah, I I found her um uh, just pretty annoying. Well, Right. Which I mean, I, think right, we're she, supposed I, she, I was to. supposed to. I know, but I she was tough to watch. I, I think not not because it she wasn't portraying this character that well, but mostly because the film was overlong by you know half. And I, I think I was just exhausted of her by the end. Uh, I could say the same thing of Mary Boland uh, Boland's character, who is uh, play, the Countess de La Vey, um, uh, that that I found just uh, woof. Tough to watch. Paulette Goddard, though, how I I could have uh, I could have watched her all day.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You know, it's it's one of these strange films that again, it it has this schizophrenic air because Miriam is having an affair with Sylvia's husband, right? And Mary, who was cut deep by her husband having this affair um, with Crystal. Doesn't seem to have a problem hanging out with Miriam. It's it's like you know you're doing to me or you're doing to Sylvia what Crystal did to me. But we can be friends and there's no problem there. And it's it's just there's a weird sensibility there of of. They they dismiss things so well. Like nobody seems to have this the same problem with Miriam that they do with Crystal, and I found that really weird. Even though Sylvia, well Sylvia does at the end they have a fight on the ranch. Yeah, right. They have that fantastic cat fight, but it doesn't seem to. Nobody seems to care that much about it it. Stick, yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. I think it's maybe. I mean, they all kind of write it off like, oh, well, Sylvia's husband. They don't like each other anyway, or whatever. But it's like, right?
1: Well, and again, some of it is is just me, uh, you know, writing. Uh, I, I don't know. You, I feel like I can't give it as much credit as I'm about to. But part of it is that it's a statement of the uh, the uh, the social class that none of these fights really matter. None of these relationships are really substantive at all. And uh, in the end, you're just watching fleeting uh moments that that just they they're just going to disappear they're going to be gone it'll all be forgotten everything that you have just seen like the character arc being a circle everything you've just seen for the last 2 hours and 13 minutes is is, is it never happened we're yeah. going to start from zero again and and if that's the case let's just say we're being super gracious and that's the case then that makes it even less of a reason for the film to have been made like i, I it's it is empty calories to for me
0: so it it kind of reminds me of the great gatsby when you have um nick when he comes back into the house Later, And he sees Daisy. And it's like everything is repeating itself. And you've got, you know, the curtains are blowing the same way. And, I, I mean, I can't remember exactly how it plays out. But it's like nothing is changing in their lives. It's like this same cycle that they keep going through. And that's exactly kind of what this film seems like. It's like this is just this the same cycle that these people will perpetually be going through. And, you know, she kind of comes back to her husband and they reunite at the end. And then they'll make the women too. And it's all, uh, it's about Peggy. And her relationship with her husband and, and now she's going through this this gossipy divorce and we get to see the whole thing. And it's just like and everything kind of comes full circle and they all end up back where they were. And it's just this is the society that they live in. Yeah. It's yeah,
1: that doesn't make it great.
0: It doesn't make it great. Uh, yeah, not at all. But it's it's almost like that's Kind of where they leave us when we get to the end, right? Isn't
1: it? Isn't it interesting, though, that you would bring up The Great Gatsby talking about this movie and F. F Scott Fitzgerald actually did rewrites on the script?
0: I know. It's interesting. It is I wonder, interesting. I wonder if he was uh thinking of any of his characters as he was doing rewrites on this.
1: I I don't know. Um it is it but it it feels like one of those things like if we're going to because it, you know so much of the Great Gatsby is about this it's this story of the American dream like what what are we achieving out of the American dream and and, and this period from um you know from the early 20s to 1950 with the uh, sort of the death of a salesman like this period was all about exploring Um, you know, love, loss, and economy (laughs) around the American dream and this great transformation. And in so many ways, like, uh, the women is representative of the absolute worst, right? The excess that that came out of, um, you know, for this class of society that that came out of this post-depression. And, and this, this film is an exploration of all that was not good and all the greed that comes out of us as human organisms in all the very worst ways. Yeah. That's what's offensive about this stinking thing. Yeah. What else?
0: Uh, Well, it was nice seeing Joan Fontaine pop up, even if uh, her character was really ho hum, didn't care about her at all or her divorce and, you know, getting back together. It's like, oh, another one. Mrs. Moorhead, the owl. I, you know, I wrote down, I'll listen to Owl's advice in poo over hers any day. (laughs) That's pretty much what I thought about her. If
1: it doesn't end in gahool, I don't want any.
0: (laughs) But that was, uh, you know, uh, I mean, the cast I mean yeah yes. they had some some strong performances um by some of the the ladies at the time, and uh yeah, but you know the script was what it was, and it uh it made it for a tough watch uh
1: how would how it do how would it perform how the world well, did it take the world by storm?
0: It's interesting you know considering the year nineteen thirty nine that everybody talks about. And this is one of the films that people talk about in 1930, uh, in those great films, um, which it, to me, it just strikes me as uh, strange. But this film did, didn't receive any Oscar nominations. It was uh, kind of left uh, left out in the cold, interestingly. Um, it did get remade several times. As we already said, there was the the musical comedy in the 50s called The Opposite Sex. Uh, Apparently, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder remade it as a TV show in Germany in 1977 called Women in New York, and then Diane English's remake in 2008. That was a big bomb. And interestingly, and, you know, thanks to Eddie Mannix, who we've uh, talked about on the show a number of times now, um, most recently in the Hail Caesar episode, um who you know he tracks he had his ledger, and he would kind of track all the finances from all the movies at the time uh, for mGM, which I just I really love, but uh this film it looked like it had made a little bit of money. this film in nineteen thirty nine dollars cost about uh one point six eight eight million, which is about just over twenty eight million in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the Princeton advertising budget, which is about eight hundred forty-four thousand or about fourteen thousand in today's dollars, this film ended up losing money in nineteen thirty-nine. Wow. Which I thought was uh interesting considering how great it was supposed to be. It ended up making about two point two million, which is about thirty-eight million adjusted. So all told, it ended up losing about thirty-three thousand dollars per finished minute in adjusted dollars. Wow. Yeah. All right.
1: Now I feel a little guilty about the last hour and 10 minutes.
0: I don't. I feel vindicated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not to pile on, (laughs) but wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think it was, uh, that is, I I hate to say it. Those are sort of some deserved losses.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, sorry, Anita Luce, but, uh, you know... (laughs)
1: This is we a film didn't. that, and and I would say now it makes me sort of want to go read the play, but not really, uh, because I I'm so curious how how the play, uh, you know, portrays these relationships and portrays these characters. Uh, it, it, there has to be some sort of redemptive piece to it, and I, I because I certainly didn't see it in the film. Um, we should probably rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash thenextreel. Uh, sign up for your account, and this is going to be the one you want to start with. You want to start with The Women, 1939, at, because, you know, you can only go up from here.
0: <laughs> All right. The first film, we've got our O Brother block. The Women or O Brother. Oh Brother. Oh Brother, indeed. The Women or Taxi Driver. Taxi driver, Andy. Taxi driver. I am so glad to hear (laughs) you say taxi driver. Oh, the women or Escape from New York. Escape from New York, Andrew. Escape from New York. The women or The Blob. 1958, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. Totally going with The Blob here. The women ain't got nothing over that blob. (laughs) Let me tell you. All right. We've got The Women or Pritzy's Honor.
1: Yeesh, that wasn't good.
0: It was. It wasn't bad. I'm still going. I'm going with it. I mean, I'm picking it. There were some great scenes between uh, Jack and Kathleen. Yeah, uh, Prissy's honor for me. Yeah, Prissy's honor. Yeah. The women. Now we're getting down to it. The women or scoop? Scoop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so bad. That was really bad. Andy, I, scoop I don't or recall the women
1: sitting next next to each other. It's the only thing you can watch is scoop or the women. You're telling me you're, you're not even going to pay attention to either one of them. You're going to put on the women.
0: I'm going to put on scoop. You're okay. right. <laughs> All
1: right.
0: I was torn because there were like three scenes that I enjoyed in the women. I don't recall a single scene I liked in scoop, but then I remembered I'd have to sit through a 10 minute <laughs> fashion show <joke> again <laughs> I'll take Woody Allen, terrible movie anyway. Yep. But, uh, all right, The Women, or Under the Cherry Moon, Pete.
1: Under the Cherry Moon, Andy, and I know you're going to say the same thing.
0: (laughs) I'm going to say The Women, and I really am sorry that I'm saying it, but...
1: We're we're doing it. We're going to the mat. We're going to do it. Guilty pleasure. All right.
0: Uh right. One, One, two, two, three, three, paper. paper. (laughs) One, One, two, two, three, three, The Women. (laughs) Scissors. (laughs) that's me giving that to you pete
1: (laughs) oh andy at the very bottom dare i say you are so gracious (laughs) may your life serve as a role model for others
0: i didn't want your guilty pleasure to be on the bottom forever
1: (laughs) there is only one movie that really deserves to be on the bottom andy and you know you've already (laughs) broken that
0: oh the the women
1: (laughs) (laughs) now it's the women
0: right it is the women (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. Wow. 1939. What kind of year is this? You know, I was hoping we would do these 1939 series and Andy. just find just gem after gem after gem. Yeah. And th- thus far, I mean, there have been some good movies. Um, and, you know, there have been a, there's a great movie in there, I think. But for the most part, it's like, gosh, what is it about 1939? I, I hope we get to the bottom of this with our next four films.
1: I do, too. And, you know, I I have to bring up some historical context here because there was something we totally forgot to talk about, which was these divorce ranches. Oh, yes. Right? How did we forget that? This was the most interesting part of the research about this film, and it has nothing to do with the film, apart from the fact that they set the second half of the film there. These divorce ranches. Had you ever heard of anything like this?
0: No, they have totally different ranches in uh, in Nevada (laughs) now.
1: (laughs) Oh, that oh, was good, Andy. <laughs> that was good
0: comedy. It's all changed.
1: This there is this period from 1930s to the, to the early 60s where uh, Reno, Nevada had the most liberal divorce uh rules uh in the nation. Uh and so it, as it as it happened in other states, other cities, you you'd have to have a really specific case to get a divorce and and you know one example here i found is uh in new york you could only get a divorce if if one spouse could prove that the other spouse had been adulterous you'd have to have pictures you'd have to have witnesses and and even with the evidence you'd have to wait a full year before filing a divorce and eventually being granted one so it was really hard to get a divorce. Nevada in Reno had nine grounds where you could get a divorce. Impotency, adultery, desertion, conviction of a felony, habitual drunkenness, neglect to provide the common necessities of life, insanity, living apart for three years, and extreme cruelty entirely mental in nature and required no proof at all. Uh, and that's that's the state of divorce in Nevada. The only trick is you'd have to live there uh, for six weeks, right? You'd have to have six weeks residency there, uh, according to a 1931 bill that was designed to spur the Nevada economy uh, in the Depression. I think this is fantastic. So these Jeez. ranches popped up where— Men and women, but they were they were pretty gender specific. Where men and women would go and they would live for six weeks on these ranches and just go crazy. It's like Rumspringa for the for the Pennsylvania Dutch kids. It's like it's just going crazy. They would just go and they would have affairs with ranch hands and they would drink and they would debauch and it was just, that was the thing that they would do. Where wealthy people would go and just go crazy in Reno for six weeks while waiting for their divorce to clear, and then they'd have a big celebration on their last night, and then they'd go back to their real life and that wow. was the setting of this the second half of this film is all these ladies end up and that's part of the comedy of the second half of this film is all these ladies show up at this ranch and and they're all it's like dominoes fall they're all getting divorces like they were all part of the society and now they're all cowboys and they're wearing these terrible western outfits uh and uh you know just sort of parading around making a big show of themselves and and uh, and so uh i, I just Thought it was hysterical that this had happened according to this book uh, the divorce seekers a photo memoir of Nevada dude wrangler uh, and in this case the dudes are not just men but women too. anybody who comes from out of town uh, to work a ranch is is called a dude Um, they say uh, mental cruelty uh, with the most popular charge being it, it could cover a wide variety of complaints even something like quote she talks to me when I'm trying to read or quote he interrupts me while I'm trying to write. That could be grounds for divorce in Reno. Jeez! Right? This is that, uh, that is fantastic history. I knew nothing about that history, and I think it is uh, that is it, that is the gift of this movie that I got to learn about these Reno, uh, these <laughs> Reno Depression era divorce ranches. And Brilliant. what a gift it was! What a gift!
0: Uh, so, so with that gift, uh, what did it leave for your uh, star rating over on letterbox.com oh. slash the next reel? <laughs>
1: Well, segue, uh, it, it left me a big fat, uh, I don't know, what's the lowest we can go?
0: Zero? Yeah, no, it's a Actually, zero. It's well, you can't really. Half star,
1: half star, half star, I'm, star. I,
0: I'm at a half star because, like I said, there are a few scenes I like. Yeah. And uh, a, a few bits of dialogue and um, that bit of history really uh, is fascinating. So half star just for the divorce <laughs> Half facts. star
1: for divorce ranches. <laughs> I will take that. Oh Good. All right. Well, where do we go from here, Andy? Please, for the love of Pete, tell me we do something better after this.
0: I I hope so. I guess we'll find out. We are going to be uh, skipping on over to the Old West, actually, over here in Arizona, in Monument Valley. We're going to be joining John Ford on his stagecoach. John Ford. John Ford's got
1: to bring us something. I hope so. I'm rolling the dice on you, John. Come on.
0: I've seen this one uh, in film school. I have very vague recollections of it, and I'm curious to rewatch it and uh, see what I think this time. All right, let's do it. Before then, though, I gotta go to bed. All right, I'm gonna go try getting rid of these Reno jumpy wumps. So I've got a five star by Jose. There are a lot of people love this movie. Eighty-five wow. percent five stars over on Amazon. Oh
1: goodness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of people who love this movie. And so considering the the uh I don't want to say vitriol, but considering the uh, the negative comments that we had to say about it, I figured it was worth reading a five star just to see what people had to say. I agree and with this you. is this is Jose from 1999 watching it on VHS, who says one of the greatest and still most underrated Hollywood comedies about the lives, lies, and tricks of a few high society quote friends. Cucoir is superb in its direction. He looks so comfortable directing only women. I don't recall seeing Cucor the film <laughs> <laughs> that this is one of his gayest films not even man appeared as an extra the women full the screen with wonderful gowns hilarious dialogue and catty fights Norma Shearer in her heartbreaking specialty she knows how to learn us the immensity of the problem if Joan Crawford steals your man Joan Fontaine is lovely and Paulette Goddard and especially Rosalind Russell our beloved Roz are incredibly funny Joan is terrific as well, and Chris, as Crystal Allen, she's at her best when she proclaims, "There's names for you, ladies," but it doesn't—it doesn't get used in high society outside of a kennel. <laughs> okay, that was a good line. Yeah, that was a good line. I liked that line—a nice little uh, production code line. Yeah.
1: Well, um, needless to say, I disagree.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> uh, and and I also disagree with Rex Maxfield, who also watched this film on VHS tape. In 2002, with his review, five stars, pfft, hiss, what a catfight. I've loved this film for years, perhaps more every time I see it. This was the classroom for those dynasty broads. It is sure one of the best examples of ensemble performance. The first inkling I ever had of this film was in in the 1970 question mark Los Angeles Film Exposition's tribute to Rosalind Russell. They showed clips from about 15 of her films, and what they showed from the women was the exercise scene. After that, I was on a mission to see the film pre-video. But Roz isn't the only star shining. They all do, even the bit players. So what do they want you to do? Lay an egg? That's a quote from the film. (laughs) <laughs> the script by Anita Luce and Jane Murphan adapted from the Claire Booth's play is extraordinarily wonderful what dialogue if you haven't had the, an appreciation for Norma Shearer before well you certainly will after seeing this film and Joan Crawford Crystal Allen maybe the woman we'll all like to hate best forever oddly there was no Academy Award nomination for any aspect of this film huh perhaps there was an anti-George Cukor movement abroad in 1939 he was fired from jo- Gone with the Wind remember not even Adrian's costumes just get a load of what he put on Roz. If you've never seen the women, shame on you. Mm. Wow. Uh I I do think it's puzzling that uh, uh, that there was no Academy Award nomination for any aspect of the film. We should really not waste any time thinking about that. Hashtag Oscar so white. Had this film been released this year it would have swept.
0: <laughs>
1: They'd all get nominated. They'd all get nominated.
0: It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this. 1939.
1: Gone with the Wind. Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. Down uh, to the Baskervilles. Nice. Meryl Street. Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, Sophie's Choice. Uh, French <laughs> Lieutenant's Woman. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, the Bad Seed. Uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Uh, your favorite, David Mamet. Clinton, Gary
0: Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt. Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it.